Well, turn with me, if you would, to the first epistle of the Corinthians in chapter 15. This evening, our main text will be 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 12 through 20. I trust a very familiar passage of scripture to many of us, um, but something that we can always take some more time to think about and to consider and to praise God as a result of the things that we read here, these wonderful truths that we find in scripture. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and starting in verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us. Let's go to him and ask for his help this evening. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us in 1 Corinthians 15, for the fact that we can know that Christ has been raised, that our faith is not futile, that we are no longer still in our sins as we are trusting in him. We pray that your spirit would illumine us to understand more and more the truths that he has inspired the Apostle Paul to write even 2,000 years ago. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we consider our modern culture around us, all the things that are going on, all the things that we like to talk about and the things that we don't like to talk about, it's pretty easy to see that death is not high on the list of preferred topics of conversation. That throughout most of the year, we don't like to speak of death, we don't like to think of death, and for pretty good reasons. It's not something that's enjoyable or pleasant for us. But each and every single year, as we come to this time of year, as we come to Good Friday and to Easter, death becomes much more at the center of what we think about, specifically the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his burial and his resurrection. And as we see here in 1 Corinthians 15, there are some questions that need to be asked, some questions that need to be asked about how we are to understand death and the resurrection, how we are to understand these somewhat heavy things. It seems that there were people who were going around Corinth and troubling the Corinthian Christians, telling them that there was no resurrection from the dead, not necessarily that Christ had not raised, been raised, but that they themselves would not be raised on the last day basically saying that Christ was the one who was raised from the dead, and that was it, full stop, that was the end of it. And they were troubling the Corinthian Christians with this, and the Apostle Paul uh, knows that this is not a good thing to have in your mind. The Corinthian church was full of problems, I think that's probably putting it mildly. You read from the beginning to the end of 1 Corinthians, and you see one thing after another after another, things that they believed that were wrong, things that they did that that were wrong, things that they failed to do that they ought to have done. And yet we find that this is something that makes the cut. As Paul is considering it, as he's answering all these different problems and writing to correct them, he wants them to know in no uncertain terms about the resurrection of the dead. And as you look at 1 Corinthians 15, it's quite a long chapter. There's quite a lot that Paul gets into here talking about this resurrection. So we will see especially three things this evening as we consider just verses 12 through 20. We'll see three uh, main points, three headings as we have them. 
And the first one as we come to it is the fact that Christians still die. Now I realize that's a heavy thing to say. It's a heavy thing to hear. We have an understanding though, don't we, that yes, in this life, we still live on a fallen world. We still are dealing with the effects of sin and the curse. We're still dealing with all these different things that are terrible. And tomorrow as we go about our lives, as we go back into the world and do all the different things that we have to do, we're going to realize certainly that there are a lot of heavy things out there. That we, I'm sure, ourselves know of people who are suffering. People who are struggling with various things. And sometimes death is just around the corner, it seems, in every turn. That we know this person is struggling. We know that person has recently died and the family is grieving. And we can begin to wonder, okay, what is this? If Christians still die and we're saved but still dying, then does the good news end at Christ's resurrection? And certainly we gather together on Easter Sunday and we celebrate the resurrection of our Savior and it's a wonderful time and it's full of joy and glorious uh, rejoicing in the gospel and what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The fact that death did not keep our Savior in the tomb. But there can be sometimes a tendency on that Monday morning, on that day after, to wonder, okay, but how does this affect how I live in my day-to-day life? How does this change these things as I'm considering them? What does this mean for me even now, even on this day? Christ rose from the dead, but we still die, and we recognize that. We recognize that each and every single person in this room, if Christ does not return visibly first, will one day die. That we ourselves will go into the grave, that we will suffer death. We know that we still have to deal with these things. And so we're saved but dying. And so we can begin to ask certain questions. We can ask, will death win? As everyone dies, including us Christians, will death win? Is that that final thing that will not be uh, taken care of? Is it the inevitable thing? As it said, the only things you can trust really are death and taxes. Is that really true? Is death just how things are? Is death just how things will always be? As we consider this question, we look especially at the first century world in which the epistle of the Corinthians was written, death was much more visible to them. We have very good ways as modern people to put death behind the curtain, to not have to think about it so much. But it was much more visible in an ancient world that was far more uh, filled with death, perhaps, or more obviously filled with death than ours is. You consider even as we turn in a few minutes to look at the Heidelberg Catechism, the 16th century world was full of death as well. There was still the bubonic plague going around, sometimes wiping out entire villages. There were conflicts, there were persecutions, all these different things happening. Death was a part of the reality of life around these people. And yet, Paul is writing to them, to these Corinthians in the first century, and giving them comfort and hope. The Heidelberg Catechism is taking places like 1 Corinthians 15 and explaining it in a way to give the people of God hope even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of a life filled with death, it seems. And so as we ask the question, will death win? The answer is certainly not. Notice again with me verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If death wins, then that's essentially what the case is. If death wins and Christ has not been raised and we are not going to be raised, then that's it. There's really no point in any of the things that we are doing. 
There's no hope in the world. There's no idea of anything that could ever get better than this. This is the best that we can hope for. But we see that that is not the case, that Paul is writing this to show these people, to show us even that death will not win, that death is not the final word. And we see that through the resurrection of Christ, especially as we'll see in just a moment. But first we can ask, okay, if death will not win, how are we to think of death in the meantime? Is death still a curse? Is it still something that comes to us as punishment for our sins, for our condemnation? We can think perhaps of what is probably my favorite passage of scripture as I have to think about it. Isaiah 26, I'm sure I've mentioned it before. As we have this section where Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is prophesying of these different things and saying, we have tried as your people to do these things. We have tried with all of our efforts to make salvation possible for ourselves, to redeem ourselves, and we've done nothing. And he says, we have strived, we have done all these things, and we have given birth to the wind. All the pain, all the suffering, all the effort leads to nothing. But in Isaiah 26 and verse 19, we read, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. And so we see even hundreds of years before Christ comes, even hundreds of years before his death and burial and resurrection, God is promising that death is going to change character for his people. This is probably the clearest Old Testament example of a prophecy about the resurrection of the body. And what God is promising to his people is all these things that you have attempted, all these things you have tried to redeem yourself, certainly have not worked, but I am going to do something for you. You have strived as hard as you can and given birth to the wind. I'm going to make the earth give birth to the dead that you're going to walk out of your grave. But in the meantime, certainly you're going to die. And certainly Isaiah's audience would have understood that. They're hearing all these judgments that are coming upon them soon. They're living in a time, perhaps, when the northern kingdom of Israel is being wiped out by the Assyrians. They know that the judgment of God by the hand of the Babylonians will soon be coming to them. But what is God's way of speaking to his people? Well, he speaks very gently. He says, come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. You see what he's doing there? He's turning the tomb into a bedchamber. The place of judgment into a place of rest. And so we see that for the believer in God, the one who trusts in God's promises, that in Isaiah's day we're looking forward to Christ and now we're looking back to Christ. Death is no longer a payment for sin. It's now a stop on the way to our ultimate glorification and resurrection. That death is a way, a stop on the way to our hope. And this resurrection will take place on the last day. And so we consider this understanding that Christians still die. It's still a reality in our world. It's still something that we have to deal with and consider. But that death will not win. And that death is no longer a curse for sin. And why is this the case? Well, that brings us to our second point this evening. Christ is the firstfruits. You see that especially clearly in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
So we see here that there are these groups of people who are coming in and are bothering the Corinthians, saying, yes, Christ rose, but you won't. Christ came out of the grave, but his people will stay there. And Paul's saying, no. That if we are not raised, then Christ has not been raised, and vice versa. As we consider what the Bible says about the death of God's people, a large part of it we understand, especially in the New Testament, is centered on the bodily resurrection, which is a sure thing for us. As we gather together on Easter Sunday, not just this year, but in all years, we are not just commemorating something that happened in the past and stayed in the past. We are receiving from God in the present. We are receiving the benefits of the inheritance, even as we heard this morning, this glorious inheritance that will never fade away. And we are proclaiming until the end our faith in the fact that God will raise us from the dead because Christ himself is the firstfruits. Now, boys and girls, you may ask, what are first fruits? It's not necessarily something that we use a lot in our own conversations today, but generally in the Old Testament, the first, the first fruits were the part of the harvest that would be brought in first. And they would be brought essentially to God at the tabernacle or at the temple and dedicated to him. And it was basically a way of saying that this is the first part of the harvest that's coming in, and there's more coming later, but it really, God, is all yours. It all belongs to the Lord. It all belongs to Yahweh. And Paul, of course, as a former Pharisee, knows the Old Testament very well. He understands the language that he's using. He understands what it is that he's saying here. He's saying that Christ's resurrection was the beginning of a harvest as well. It was a harvest of the resurrection, that Christ is the first fruits from the dead. This is a harvest of you and I on the last day. All of us who are here trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we can be sure, we can be confident that we will one day rise from our graves because Christ himself has risen from his. This is the confidence that Paul brings to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And why is this the case? Well, because where he goes, we will follow. That we are so closely united to our Savior. That what happens to him will happen to us. That where he is, he will call us. This is a helpful thing for us to remember in this life, that there is this link between us, because sometimes doesn't it seem, brothers and sisters, as if we are far away from him. As if we know objectively these things are true, but subjectively we feel very distant. What scripture tells us is that we are linked very closely to our Savior. It's like when you're younger and your parents take you to a, the zoo or an amusement park. And you know, you're seven or eight years old and you have no livelihood of your own. You can't pay the prices to get in. But your mom and dad pull out their wallets and they buy the tickets. And you and your siblings are allowed to go in and to enjoy all the wonderful blessings that are awaiting you. All the animals or the amusement park rides or whatever it may be. Not because you have paid for it, not because you have earned it, but because someone is with you who paid your way. You are able to go in because your mom and dad were to go in. Now, if you were to try to go in on your own, there would be consequences. It wouldn't go well. That isn't how things work in our world, and it's not how things work in the resurrection either, that we cannot get there on our own. We cannot earn it in any way. We do not deserve it in any way, but we can be confident. And if you take nothing else away from this evening, take this away. That where our Savior has gone, we ourselves will go. That where our Savior 
has gone into heaven out of the tomb, we ourselves will follow him. And this is a sure thing because he is the first fruits. He paved the way for us. He earned the blessings with us. And as long as we're with him, we are allowed in. This is why we can know that although we ourselves are not holy ones, as we sing about in Psalm 16, that he will not let us see corruption and decay. That ultimately he will raise us from the dead, and we can know that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, pleasures that we ourselves have not earned, but pleasures that have been given to us because we are united to Jesus Christ. And where he goes, we will follow. Notice how Paul begins in 1 Corinthians 15 with a summary of the gospel. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance in verse 3, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and he gives a list of those who have seen him. He begins this chapter, he begins this question on the resurrection by reminding the Corinthian believers of what Christ has done. Of how Christ has lived and died and rose again for them. And that's true for us this evening. As many of us as are trusting in Jesus Christ can know that this is true for us. That we are those who are following in the harvest of resurrection that the first fruits Christ inaugurated 2,000 years ago. And this is our great comfort. This is our great hope. And we can ask, well, what kind of body will this be? What exactly is it that we're getting here? Well, notice with me in verses 42 through 49 that Paul summarizes it this way. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born in the image, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Notice what Paul is doing here. He is telling us that we are going to have a spiritual body. Now, when you read spiritual here in 1 Corinthians 15, what you should do in your mind is capitalize the S. Now, Paul is not talking about the spirit as opposed to the body, spirit as opposed to matter or flesh. What he's talking about is a body that's brought to you by the Holy Spirit, that's shot through with the power of the Holy Spirit. And why is that necessary? Well, it's necessary to enter into the new creation. What does he say about Adam, about his body, about the body that we bear as we are in the image of Adam? That it's a natural body. Perhaps we could say it's a dusty body. But notice what he's doing here. Is he saying this is the case after sin? That this is the case after corruption has worked its way into humanity and has corrupted us in many different ways? Well, no. He's comparing Adam as he was created to Jesus Christ as he is entering into the new creation. What he's saying here is very simply, this was always the point from the beginning. This was always the end goal. 
That it wasn't as if Christ is coming just to bring us back to where Adam was in the garden. He's bringing us far, far farther. He is bringing us into the new creation. He's giving us a spiritual body even like his. Not opposed to the physical, but a body of the new creation. A body that is incorruptible. A body that is not dealing with all the different things that we deal with. And a body that's even better than Adam's body was when it was created without defect before the fall. What he's saying here is that what Christ has done in his resurrection is he is the first fruits of something different, of something new. That things are not always going to be the way that they are now. That we're not always going to deal with the same things that we've been dealing with for as long as we can remember. But that Christ is bringing us into the new creation and our bodies will be glorious and glorified even as his is. That this is our hope. And that brings us to our third and final point this evening, that salvation includes resurrection. Salvation includes the resurrection of the body. Now, the soul is important, certainly. We read in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And we can understand that as we consider it. We understand, don't we, boys and girls, that when we die, that our body and our soul are separated at that time. And that our soul goes to be with the Lord. It goes to be in heaven with our God. And our body is buried. It's put into the ground awaiting the resurrection. And we have a really good understanding of that sometimes. Of the fact that the soul is immortal. The soul moves and continues going on even after the body itself has died biologically and physically. And our death Our bodies and souls are separated. This is known as the intermediate state, but it's known as the intermediate state for a reason. It was never meant to be the permanent state. It was never meant to be this way forever. That you and I are part of the human race, that we were created body and soul by God in the beginning. That God could look on the body and soul of Adam and Eve as he created them and declare them very good. And although the soul is immortal, although the soul continues even after the body has died, the soul was never meant to be without a body. That that is not our great hope. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 2 and 3, we read, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Now that's a very clear indication, isn't it, that we do not want to be found without a body, as a soul without a body. But we also do not want to be found with our soul in this body. Ultimately, our hope is in our heavenly dwelling, our heavenly tent, to come from God. That's what Jesus Christ is the first fruits of. He is giving that to us. And so absence from the body is not our final hope. Absence from the body is not what we are looking forward to. What the entire Christian message is gearing us towards. But sometimes it's easy for us to fall into that trap, isn't it? How many times do we say things that mean essentially to put the body uh, on a lower rung and put the soul on a pedestal above it as if the soul is so much better and if we could just get away from this pesky body then things would be all right? Or how often do we talk about the fact that really what we need is to escape from this world in the physical? Or even that wonderful theological resource, Looney Tunes. 
as you consider the fact of what is heaven portrayed as, while sitting as disembodied spirits with wings and robes playing harps on the clouds. It's something that we're prone towards, to understand this idea of what we need is an escape from the body, escape from the physical. That is not, I repeat, that is not the biblical picture. That is not what we find in Scripture. That is not what our hope actually is. And so don't believe the anti-resurrection theories. Don't believe the idea that what we need is to escape from this body. That what we need is a purely spiritual, lowercase s existence where we are away from matter, away from how God has created us to be. Because it simply isn't true. And as we come to Easter, as we consider the resurrection of our Lord, that should be quite clear to us. That he was not raised as a spirit, as a phantom of some sort. That our Lord was raised in a body, a glorified body, a body that could be recognized and yet a body that could also be hidden and disguised. A body that could eat and could drink, could be touched, could be seen, could be heard. This is what we are heading for as well. And so ultimately our hope is not to be eternally without a body. Notice as we hear this from Heidelberg Catechism, question 57. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? And the answer is, not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ, its head, but also my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. You see, that's the summary of our hope. That's the summary of what we are waiting for. And all who are trusting in Christ can know that this will be the case for us because Christ is the first fruits of the harvest. Because we are united to him and we are following after him, that where he goes, we will follow. That we will one day be able to put off this corruptible body and put on an incorruptible body, and it will never again be as it is now. That things will get much, much better. I've even figured this week uh, was something of an object lesson for myself as I'm studying for this. I had about a two and a half day headache that I was dealing with, on and off. And at about the same time, my body decided I didn't need to sleep anymore, which is quite a combination. And so as I'm lying there awake at night at 3 a.m. with my head throbbing, wondering what is going on, I'm realizing it'd be nice to have an incorruptible body. It'd be nice to no longer have to deal with these things, not even just the sin, but the physical wear and tear, the breakdowns that happen, the sickness and all these different things. And then I remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That it's not even just the body as it's resulting from the corruptions of sin and the curse and the fall. But it's going to be something completely different. Something on a higher level. Something that I can scarcely even imagine. When we consider this, it helps us to remember that this world, even at its best, is not what we're waiting for. That this world, even at its best, is not sufficient to be the content of our hope that we are waiting for something much better. We are waiting for the resurrection of the body. We are waiting for the life everlasting. We are waiting for the day where God will wipe away all tears from our eyes, when death shall be no more, the former things have passed away, when he will truly and ultimately and finally and completely be our God, and we will be his people in his presence forever, enjoying the pleasures that are at his right hand. And so what is Paul calling us to do from 1 Corinthians 15, on this Easter 2,000 years later on the other side of the world. The same thing he was calling the Corinthian believers to do. 
He is calling us to hope for the resurrection. To set our eyes on the future and this great hope. To hope for the life everlasting. And to thank God that Christ himself is the first fruits. Because that is what we celebrate on Easter. That is what we celebrated this morning. It's what we are celebrating this evening. That Christ himself has risen. That the gospel is complete. And that we know that we ourselves will be raised from the dead one day. Even as Christ has been raised thousands of years ago. And we can know. No matter how far into the future this is. And one day we are lying on our deathbed. That even the best things of this world will slip right through our fingers. That they will not satisfy us. They will not give us what we think they ought to give us. They will not comfort us. But what will comfort us is this hope. What will comfort us is the fact that our Savior has gone ahead of us. That we know that we will be raised from the dead. We will always be in his presence. We will be living life in the fullest sense, life everlasting. And these things are certain because Christ has gone ahead and earned them for us. Because Christ has blazed the trail for us. To use the New Testament image, where the head goes, the body follows. Or to use an Old Testament example, as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And so this evening, God is calling us to trust in Christ. To put aside our attempts to somehow or another earn things for ourselves or to gain wonderful hope for ourselves in this world and to stake, to put all of our chips down on our Savior. To trust in him, to rest in him, knowing that he is our king, he is our head, and we as his body and his kingdom will follow him. That all who are in Jesus Christ are united so closely to him that where he goes we will follow. That is our hope. That is our confidence and we have to think about this and live in light of the resurrection each and every single day even tomorrow even when easter is over and done for another year we remember what has happened to christ that he has risen from the dead we remember the blessings that gives to us even now and we look forward to the day when we ourselves will be raised incorruptible to live everlastingly with our savior let's pray Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word that you have given to us in 1 Corinthians 15. We know that there are things just in this chapter alone that we will never be able to plumb the depths of. But we thank you, Lord, for the fact that we can understand the basics that we need to understand. That we can know that our Savior has come and lived and died and he has risen again for our sake. That he has even now ascended to heaven and sits at your right hand. That we can be confident that these blessings that we have to look forward in the future are as sure as his mediation and his perfect sacrifice. We ask, Lord, that your spirit would help us to reorient our perspectives and our desires to desire these things, to desire the life everlasting and the resurrection of the body. And we pray these things in Christ's glorious name. Amen.